0: Print maps from your hunt areas. Download it today at the Apple App Store or Google Play. Hunt Stand. Upgrade your arsenal. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast
1: dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe whitetail deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes,
2: your host, John Teeter. Hi, everybody, I'm John Teeter. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Today, I'm fortunate to have a great guest on Todd Shippey. Todd's with Empire Land Management. It's a Midwest company that focuses on a variety of different efforts, specializing in habitat enhancement. Todd works on controlled burns, food plots, forest restoration, he really does it all. He's based in Wisconsin and he's also a seed distributor and he's really kind of built a a generous business that has created a lot of attractions. In fact, Todd has helped educate a lot of people in the industry and so I'm really happy to have him on this, this podcast. I think we're going to learn quite a bit from Todd today, and in the future, he's going to be a recurring guest, and I really think he has a lot to offer. So I'd like to welcome Todd to the podcast, and I uh, really appreciate uh, you being here today with us. You want to give any intro or any background on anything you're working on currently? Uh,
1: thank you, John. Thanks for the kind intro, and thank you for having me. And right now, as a matter of fact, today I was out in the field just cleaning mice nests or mouse nests out of uh, tree tubes. I use tree tubes a lot when I'm doing forest restoration or just different enhancement. And the one drawback to them is the ones that are close to the crop edges are able to get mice in them easier because that's where mice live is by the crop edges. The ones that are back in further are less problems with mice, but mice are by the field edges. So the ones that are by the edges of fields have to be cleaned out periodically in the wintertime.
2: Now, is that on your own property or client property? client on my own. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. You know, today's one of those, uh, it's, a, we're about to have a wintery mess up here in New York and, uh, I'm kind of getting excited for, for habitat season. And, you know, I know you work on a lot of projects with your clients and I think the focus today is, is kind of talking about maybe some of those projects, but realistically, you know, we all want to improve our hunting properties. And the thing that I like to, to focus on is making sure that property is highly attractive during the hunting season And I think you've noticed over time the properties that you've worked on is there's a lot of traction value, and in fact, they're getting better over time. They're not degrading from hunting pressure or neighborhood pressure. But in in those instances where neighbors are hunting hard, you're getting a lot of those deer immigrating onto these properties and allowing your clients to to kill those deer. Uh, And I know that's something you've explained to me, and I I find that pretty intriguing because I think that's really kind of a tale of of uh, a lot of work and effort that you put into these properties. So can you kind of dig into that a little bit at a high level, and maybe break down some specific examples of things that you're doing with clients and maybe a story or two? Certainly.
1: I. So that really is the crux of land management. The properties that I go to, they'll say, well, I have a lot of deer in the summertime, but then as soon as the hunting season opens, I don't, we don't see any deer or we don't hold any bucks or we're not seeing them. Uh, they only pass through. They don't live here. So, when a property is managed and managed properly, the, the I always tell people that your property should get better as the hunting season goes on. And now, what do I mean by that? When it's laid out right, the, the basic ones that I'll run into a lot of time is they watch some videos, they listen to some podcasts, and they have the bedding for does right next to the crop edge, and then behind that, they made some, some areas so the bucks can bed, and then they have the stands, they have access to the edges of those stands. But what you have to look at at the entirety of a season is is the fact that the food should get better and always be there as the farm crops come off and transitioning the food to being attractive with each climate change that you experience in the in the seasons as, as the hunting season goes. Additionally, when you look at a property and the initial... Bedding area that's really good. September, October, is it still really good in November and December? So you got leaf drop, and you've got snowfall. Those two things make a big difference on on activity of deer, and not just activity at night, but daylight activity of deer when you have your hunting opportunities. So by stacking the edges of food plots or the doe bedding, so that they can transition back farther as. Leaf drop and maybe some snowfall that pushes the grasses down. They're going to be, they're going to have to back up from the the uh, food source that should stay highly attractive, but still be there during the day. So, in other words, you have your primary bedding, your secondary bedding, and then even your wintertime bedding that rings around. Because what happens is, depending on the area that you're in, maybe it's a hilly bluff area or you're down in a swamp area. Or the different things that the different types of properties and terrain that I work in, the deer may migrate just because it becomes bitter cold. They want the south facing slope. They're not going to lay down here right next to the food source now. They, they're transitional. So, what can you do to enhance to keep them in your area and keep you being the focus?
2: That's an interesting concept. If, if we can go back for a second, because I, I think you, you had a lot in there, having like a, a multiple. Facet bedding scenario where you have early season, mid season, late season. What do those kind of look like? Like, what's a late season bedding area like in some of your terrain settings? Because I'm kind of interested in that. Because we're kind of at the tail end of season right now. Guys are out hunting. Like, what is what does that look like in your environment?
1: Well, that's where your so. And this takes a while to build, but that's where um, some things that will stand up and are more sturdy and aren't reliant on holding their leaves okay so you want you want to have your your vertical um, and horizontal structure so that may be through hinge cutting but not just hinge cutting you got to have some either canary grass can weave up in there if that's if you're in a low area where you have the invasive species of canary grass you're not going to fight it it's really tough to beat it so you you go with it but you can get it to weave up in and it works really it works up really well um and holds up really well. Yeah. Now it might be giant miscanthus. That stuff stands up really, really well, but you gotta have full daylight and you've got to get the right kind. It might be the stuff that grows in sand or it might be the stuff that grows closer to water. Um if you have cattails in the either depending on how much water is in your cattails to go in during this time of the year when it's frozen and build some humps in the cattails that'll get them up a little higher Back from the food source. Now those hold up year round. Additionally, the heavier structure with, say, uh, I'm trying to picture right now uh, something that the DNR will consider invasive is buckthorn. But if you have it, I use it a lot because it's buckthorn is a type of tree that grows more like a brush. It's considered invasive, but where it is, it is, and you just have to deal with it. It's great for hinge cutting. It's very sturdy branches. It shoots stems up from its trunk, so you get a lot of nice shoots. And those are all examples of heavier-duty thermal cover-type bedding. Now, those have to be in relation to maybe the windward side of a slope, windward side of some heavier trees. Where they'll lay in October, they're not worried so much about the thermal cover as they are right now so now you have to have two two rows of the bedding cover so what would be just a stretch of hinge cut trees with let's say canary grass weaved up through it or maybe you went in and planted um, some native warm season grasses and let them mature and now you've feathered the edge and you dropped some trees into that native warm season grass so it comes up you made it nice and sturdy you might want to put a few pine trees and there's some type of a conifer that's gonna withstand you don't have to worry about the leaves dropping they're gonna stand up uh to kind of hold their needles here in wisconsin white spruce are native and they hold their needles they don't they won't drop off the lower branches as they get shade or as they get more mature so i use a lot of those weaved into that same type of bedding type
2: material. Yeah that's interesting you know I I can totally relate I mean the layering concept you just came up with where you have multiple facets where it's kind of like a a low layer plant a mid layer and an upper layer plant and maybe hinge cutting or using some of that structure invasive or otherwise to kind of create kind of these buffer zones that deer want to kind of bed up against and almost looking at in stages and have a multitude of those and Increased density over time like leaf drop like you had brought up earlier i think people forget once leaf you know leaf drop occurs you know the deer dispersion is eventually going to happen and the concept of having food sources that are are varying over time seasonal food sources even within those bedding areas i think create a lot of a lot of attraction one thing i wanted to just add i mean and, and you brought up some plants that are native and not native and and i don't i don't think anybody will will say well that that's absurd that you're You know, utilizing what's on the landscape. In my example, you know, I use Norway spruces often. Uh, That's a non-native plant and it does a heck of a job up in our areas creating kind of that, you know, that that, uh, wind thermal benefit. And I I would say, you know, I recommend that uh, on a lot of properties that I go to just because they don't have the, you know, branches uh, not holding their needles. I mean, there's just a whole bunch of issues that I've seen with white spruce that Norway's uh, currently, uh, they have some of those, but they don't have them that often. But uh, could you kind of break down the food example? I know you do a lot of food plots for your clients. And like, so winter food sources or food sources like right now that are really palatable? um, And I know it's temperature contingent and, and, and what's available in those areas. But, you know, when you said the agricultural fields get cut, you know, you're sucking in deer and uh, it's a really kind of a matter of your cover, which you explained, and maybe some of the food. Can you kind of break that down a little bit further?
1: Certainly. So when the corn comes off, the soybeans come off. Farmers are so efficient now at getting every last kernel of corn or crop matter off. I mean, the modern equipment is very, very efficient. And I live in an area of mega farms, so they're the most efficient farmers and they are, they have big equipment, but on the downside is they have, they use subcontractors. So they haul, if there's a problem in one field, they haul it to another. The Palmer amaranth is in this area, and now amaranth Water Hemp is in this area, and yeah. also it makes it difficult. But so what I try to do is wait in the summertime, or in the springtime, let the farmers feed them, let their crops get mature, then I'll go in and plant, and i plant things that, people think they're crazy, but beginning of July, I'll put in some corn. I'm not going to ever harvest that corn, so I don't care if it's a corn sickle right now. I don't have to worry about it drying. I just have to let it form cobs. And normally here, there's plenty of time for it to form cobs, and right now it's frozen cobs, and the deer knock it down like crazy. Also, screening of the plots are so important at this time of year. There's leaf drop. So all the things from the road or from different areas that – You used to be really good cover for the deer, and they could be in there during the daylight and feed all day long, are gone if it's not set up properly. So that's where I'll use uh, Conceal as a Whitetail Institute product. It's a a blend of sunflowers and three different kinds of sorghums, different heists of sorghum, so it gives a structure to stand up. There's some sun hemp in with it. Additionally, I'll use Giant Miscanthus from Real World, or uh, there's other other, uh, brands out there as well. Of Miscanthus stands up really good, and the reason that I'll, the reason that I use those two screens for food plots is I've shown up on a lot of properties, and there's already a fence line or there's already a row of pine trees that conifers that the person put in on their own to for a screen. And time after time, I'll hear, man, I, I really wish this wasn't here, this fence line. I should have gone, you know, a hundred yards back or seventy-five yards this way, or I wish it wasn't there altogether. And that's why I like to go temporary with things that you can move and adjust over the first three years. And then when we know, okay, now we have this set up, this is a perfect screen and a perfect spot. It also acts as a corridor from this neighbor's property to this neighbor's property. Um, now let's go for it. Now we can put in our blend of red dogwoods, uh, giant miscanthus, some conifers, and some, all the different things that we do when we build travel corridor fence lines slash screens. It's a combo operation that's a perfect thing to set up in certain scenarios. Yeah, um, Not everywhere, but in certain scenarios. So when you're screening and then also your, your access um, has to be on point for all seasons. What's really good access and really good stands at the beginning of the season clearly are not going to cut it later on. So you have to have those secondary and even third access points to get as the as they change as you gotta get closer to where they bed. Now as far as the food goes, um your brassicas, um alfalfa's right now are really hot. Brassicas, winter wheat, oats, all of those things are uh, are the green that they like. Now they have to eat twigs and woody brows, their body changes as we all know, but they'll nibble on the woody brows all the way out, but still like the night will be in those food plots. Um, eating all night and then browse on the way back. So if you, can, if you can manage your close plot, now I'm talking about the plot that's closest to your initial doe bedding area, and then if it's possible, the remote plots are what take them all the way through the winter. So I'll talk about my land um, in particular from where my initial kill plots are set up to where the plots that they're using the most right now is about a, I want to say an eighth of a mile. And at that eighth-of-a-mile point, because of the way the terrain is laid out, I've got soybeans that are untouched yet. I've got sunflowers with covered in seeds that the birds are hitting pretty good, and uh, some corn as well as um, the the winter peas and brassicas.
2: Can you kind of explain that layout a little bit more detail? So you've got this, this uh, you know, you've know uh, you have got a gap between one area of food and another area of food. Can you kind of explain right. that, that layout a little bit more detail? Certainly.
1: So... It, it doesn't work on all properties, but I find I usually can find out a way to do it on most properties. Is you have, and sometimes it's sometimes it might be an egg crop that you talk the farmer out of a portion of, but the initial plots and your kill plots and all that. But it's like a chess game. Now you're looking at what am I going to do in winter time? Where are these going to be? It's a good possibility that this food source is going to be exhausted by then because it's the most attractive food and through fertilization and timing of planting this is going to be the spot where they're all going to come to how do i make it last without it being a hundred acre field so that's when you start to locate more remote from that field and planted later on an additional plot it's a winter carryover plot now it might be three acres of corn it might be uh two acres of soybeans with brassicas drilled into the soybeans or uh, it could be the soybeans and you broadcast winter wheat or uh, winter tolerant oats or winter rye into those soybeans but it's remote enough that their bellies are full normally until that initial source is exhausted so now that through your enhanced bedding and your access points this is now the primary food source but it's farther away as is their bedding has to be a little bit farther away so it gives you shot opportunities throughout the winter months.
2: Well, wow, this is an interesting thing because you've got an arrangement of, of a bunch of different you know, bedding features and food features kind of laid out on our property for different times of year. You know, I go with the poor man stuff just because uh, I, I'm a little bit more frugal. And and in some of these remote uh, locations, when I'm designing something similar to what you're suggesting. You know, I'm typically using winter rye up here in New York, um, but I, I think it's a great concept where you've got these, you know, variability in planning times, and then obviously the interest is going to vary as well. It's it's really interesting, and then obviously having, you know, bedding areas or, or, or areas where deer are going to socialize in you know separate sections uh, will change your utilization and. I don't know if you found this, but one of the things that I've learned is, you know, deer, they kind of migrate and they use areas at different times and they use them at different times for a purpose. And you're defining when they're going to use those areas, which is completely kind of a a tactic I think most people don't think about. You're, You're really making them want to be in those areas at those certain times, which makes it a little bit easier to predict, you know, their flow and movement throughout the property. So I've got another question for you. I know you, I know you work with a, a bunch of clients and, and we'll just say that they're uh, a little less hands off and you're a little more hands on. Um, what have their experiences been this year with some of the design features you've put in place or what are the stories you've been getting? Cause I've know you've, I know you've had some pretty successful clients this year. Can you give any detail on, on anything that's going on with your clients?
1: Yeah. Well, it was a unique situation this year to, to prove a theory. Um, I was in, I was actually by you in New York for a large part of the season due to family commitments. So I missed um, from like October 17th on my property, was the last time I was on it, all the way through uh, December. And as my clients were reporting in, some nice trophy bucks were taken, some those were taken, some you know really successful, really happy clients. Um, they're calling in and telling me, hey, I'm seeing this, we're seeing that. Just the way my business is, it sets up they can call me and say, what stand do I sit tonight? Well, this wind, or should I sit this stand or yeah. that stand? Yep. And uh, they so the reports I was getting of what they were seeing on their cameras and, and visually in stand were lining up identically to my property that had no human contact on it at all, no human uh, interference that entire season. So it made me know since I wasn't on my property and there's no, uh, there's hunting pressure around it, but not right up to it. And the property that I set up for them, their access points and their hunting style, there was no difference. Cell cameras are sending me pictures and it's showing exactly what they're seeing. And it made me, it was an aha moment for me because it said, okay, we're doing it right. There's, their, their deer herd is not being impacted by human intrusion because of the layout and the access points and the location of the bedding, location of the food, and the way that they've been taught to hunt it. And by that, I mean, I, I deal with really good hunters, but sometimes even small details, like, and this could be, be another show, but small details of you shoot a deer out of a, of a blind and sit there until dark still before you get out and all the deer ever see is. And this is part of your land getting better throughout the season is you can't go, and this may be too basic for some people, bear with me, but you you can't shoot a deer in a plot, get down, gut it out right there and then drag it out and have family photos right in the plot. And all
2: that. So <laughs> really,
1: When you do it right, the, the only thing that knows that happened is you, and the deer should be the only two things that know something happened, the deer that you harvested. Yeah. So then later on, a four-wheeler pulls in and a four-wheeler pulls out. That's all the more they know. Or a pickup truck drives in yeah. and a pickup truck drives out. Yeah. They don't see so you run out in the field, hoot holler, pictures <laughs> down there, hope they you it. Those are all things. So as um, the old saying goes, you know, people will be, if you're doing a, a pre-purchase, um, land uh, walk through somebody wants you to look at, it, or they will want you to do a a paper on it, and sure. they'll say, "Well, you know, I want to be in an area that um, I, I want quality QDM all around me." And I always think to myself, and I talk to the people of this, I kind of want the opposite. I want the guy that goes out and shoots a four point buck, and he's as happy as he can be, and he goes and hangs it in his garage, and and uh, he's out of the woods. Or I want the guys that ride their four-wheelers right to their tree and climb up in there because I'm going to hunt around them and I'm going to make my – that land that you have is going to own all of the deer because they're going to go in and haze the deer off their property. The more they hunt, the better your land's going to get, and they're going to push them right into you. And hopefully the neighbors will, you know, take some of the smaller bucks or get their does and be happy. You can be happy for them because you can tolerate the land will sustain – Harvest of a young of a young buck or two and still be able to grow to- trophy sized deer around you know on your own property and in the area
2: yeah that's great todd i mean the the thing with me is you know i what I define what you just explained is the deer suck you know you're using uh the pressure around you to kind of generate you know this this movement you know towards this yeah. this really highly developed property. And the cool part about all that is, like your example, which I don't think is basic at at all, because I can't tell you how many clients that I've worked with, is you go through the harvest process, and they don't actually take... You know those those uh, precautions that you're talking about in in a play. I mean, I would almost be as curious to to make a statement of you know when I've killed deer, I almost want to mop up the blood. Um, I don't I don't even gut the yeah. deer. I don't even gut the deer in the area. I take it off, no. and it's like a strategic operation to to get that deer out of there. Taking deer you know out in the nighttime uh, as a result of the harvest or using you know equipment. I actually think that's probably one of the, the better tactics that I think people uh, that people uh, don't don't pay attention to. So uh, I, I'm, I'm in total agreement with you, total agreement. Yeah,
1: t- tractor, anything that can do it. And likewise, you know, when we, when we go on a property, so we're talking about property getting better during the season. When I go into a property like today, cleaning tubes, I was as loud and covered with cologne as I can be. Yeah. On yeah. this property that nobody's been on and that, and that is secret and the client's going to be hunting this weekend. Why? Because I'm just a guy cleaning tubes. I don't have to be sneaky. I don't have to be, if I could, when I'm putting up a stand, I run a chainsaw, and I have done that already, uh, close to a bedding area where we're seeing deer, and I need to get one up during the season. Chainsaw is running while uh, my my employees bugging up the tree, putting up a tree stand or yeah. tipping a ladder up, yeah. because now we're just two guys cutting. If it was, as soon as you try to be sneaky, and you'll see this, like cleaning out uh, tree tubes today on a client property, I looked over, and there was a doe was bedded, and I just kept moving, maybe... 60 yards away. I saw her head comp looking through the cattails and I kept moving on tree tubes and looking. Then I had one with a mouse in the bottom. As soon as I bent down, she watched me clean like five of them. As soon as I squatted down in the grass to get to the bottom of that tree tube, grow tube for a tree, she whistled and away she took and yeah. flew and, and yeah. took off with cautious. But as long as I'm just a guy screwing around in the woods, I'm just another farmer. I'm just another guy doing something. And that makes it that much better For when you are sneaky and slipping with no scent on and up the edges. Yeah. So the only human activity they see, they're not paranoid that everybody's sneaking around and whispering every time they're on the property. There are things, habitat improvement, things that happen throughout the year it causes them no alarm whatsoever.
2: Yeah. These no, all- that, that makes don't be that, sneaky. Yeah. And that makes sense. And you're doing some of that work, you know, far from the designated sanctuaries that you've kind of laid out, exactly. but you know, exactly. it's still, I mean, it, it goes to show you that they become accustomed to some, some type of, you know, human disturbance. And like you're saying, when you become a threat, they, they have some awareness of that. And, uh, you know, I I think that uh, that's a great takeaway, and uh, it's funny that you're uh, you're tree, you're cleaning tree tubes right now because I got to go out and put some uh, tree tubes up on some of my apple trees because because I'm a I'm a little bit late to the game uh, or hardware cloth up. So, uh, you know, I th- I think we'll end on that, Todd. I think there's uh, there's a ton out of this that I got, um, and I, I think that you know, real realistically, you know, you're creating these great environments for your clients and. And really, uh, you know, in this case, you're willing to share kind of your secrets, and I, and I appreciate that. I know you're going to be on a bunch more podcasts, and we've got other topics that we're we're going to talk about, but. I appreciate you being on, and, and I, I want to be clear on something. I, I know that you already have a set of clients that you work with. You normally don't take any clients, um, but but you are available to talk to people and communicate. and uh, you know, is there any way that people can find you? I, I know your business is, is located in Wisconsin, and, and I know people buy seed and and product from you, but can you give me more information on your business? Um,
1: well, it's Empire Land Management, and I'm on um, uh, Instagram at Empireland, MGMT empire land MGMT. Um, and then they can call me at nine two zero two five one sixty five eighty one. I love talking uh, habitat. I love sharing information. You're correct. I don't take on any more clients right now. I can't, yep. um, but I still share information and I still like to talk food plots, um, and any, any type of habitat stuff. So yeah, if somebody has a question and they want to give me a call, I take those calls all the time from all over the country. <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah, it's enjoyable. I like to share information. I like to teach guys. I know how I felt when I was just starting off, and you're trying to learn, and you're unsure, and, uh, you know, the wise man learns from his mistakes, but the really wise man learns from other people's mistakes, so. Yeah,
2: yeah, no, that's, um, a, that's a great way to end this. Well, thanks, Todd. I appreciate it. Uh, we're going to have you on more podcasts, obviously, coming up, and uh, thanks, everyone, for listening and following. There'll be more to come.
1: Sounds good. Thanks, John. Take care. See ya. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.